and welcome to Plants and Pets, a podcast where we talk about plant science. My name is Tegan, that is Yaram, and today we are here and alive and all of the things. Um, yeah. I tried to give Yaram an option, like an opportunity to do the intro because I think I tend to hog that. It's always me getting my voice in first, but he didn't mm-hmm. want no, because I'm I'm actively trying to be less of the person who always talks over others. Um, because that's a problem. I've uh, had people approach me about that, and so now I'm actively I mean, learning to be a better person. In front I of mean, she says actively interrupting him. We are both those people, and we're we're aware of it. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. mean that the time we choose to do something about it is in the podcast when it's actually the talking <laughs> part is kind of important here. Arguably. Yeah. yeah, the problem is when I'm 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 do- doing stuff with people who are not interrupting me all the time, then I tend to speak too much. So we 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 found our matches in this uh show here and I think that's good. Yeah. What what have you been up to, Tegan? Because I literally have done nothing interesting apart from taking care of sick children and I don't want to talk about this anymore ever. I think I've been doing too many things interesting in the last couple of weeks. So I had a friend visiting from Berlin, which was very, very lovely. Um, plant-related, we went to Kew Gardens again, um, but just generally explored the world. And then I had to dash f- to Paris on the train for a weekend, which was very nice, but also crazy chaotic. So visiting like, I don't know, somehow all of the people we know seem to have migrated to Paris. If something's happening in that big city, I- I'm not sure. It's very attractive for plant people right now. So we've, we had like three of our PhD postdoc friends who now live there. And then another group of people were visiting from like outside. So there was just lots of chaos. My family, as I said, had also decided to visit Paris, not London. So I went to see them and then dashed back home again. So it's been a bit running, running, running. And I have a conference in Toronto next week as well. So running, running, running in, in very fun ways. I mean, you can't really complain about getting to go on a train to Paris, right? But it's... I could rest. I could nap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel that. Although, also, I, I miss taking a train or anything to Paris. Um, maybe soon. Although, I think I've, over over Easter, I've took a train to to France. Uh, I think I talked about this last show. So, no, no new details there. But I took a train at least in the last couple of weeks. So, something going on for me. <laughs> train riding, yeah. The amazing stuff of a. Of, of uh, family life with young kids but anyway um do you have anything <laughs> else exciting plant related or should we just jump straight into the fun into the plant facts um no all i can all i can think in my head is like i have the song from frozen going over and over in my head um i think the great thing about having friends with kids from different countries is that you learn the let it go song in different languages so <laughs> i just learned that in french the the let it go part is like liberté and then um instead of saying what is it in english it's the the cold never bothered me anyway is kind of the main the main part of the song um in French, they say, the cold is the price of freedom. Um, and in German, they say something like, the cold is now a part of me, or something similar. I don't yeah. know. This is a- way more intense, way more intense <laughs> than the original. Yeah, like, I'm fine with the cold. It's kind of very, um, it's okay. Yeah. I wonder if somebody's done a kind of, yeah, cultural analysis on the, I, I get it, you translate Surf-y. it, and you have to fit it into the the lyrics, like the, the tune and the rhythm and everything, jam it into that song, but... Yeah, somebody should be getting I on that think, right now. 
I think there's like in, in, in cultural history studies or whatever uh, for like modern stuff, there is like 40% doing Harry Potter analyses. 40% yeah. are doing like Lord of the Rings stuff. Still. And 20% are doing Frozen or Disney movie stuff. And maybe like somewhere in there, there's like one percentage that breaks off that does everything else that exists. Or probably there's also like a percentage doing like Tarantino movies. But I imagine it must be like <laughs> incredibly popular to like overanalyze all of these franchises. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm sure, like I'm just looking like, uh, but I think this is a, this is a block post. I don't know if it's from university or something else, but there's something about like Disney frozen, frozen and cultural studies. But this is a part of science that I never fully understood how that works. Like all of the like social sciences, uh, how you do research there and how you do work there. That doesn't mean that I don't think it's important. I just don't. <laughs> I just can't imagine like what is the day-to-day -day work like because I can imagine it very easily in all of the STEM stuff because you go into a place where you do experiments and then you write down numbers and then you write down conclusions from these numbers that you measure. Or sometimes you do it like a little bit more theoretically and you do like based on mathematics. Um, we just had a brief, we just had a brief interlude um, when we were joined by a very small man on the podcast. We should, we should be in bed at this time of day, but mm. refused to. Um, literally mm. got up out of the bed that he's been in for a while. But anyway... Yeah, it's it's going to be the rest of the podcast will be interesting because I just tried to switch to German and ask questions about Japan, which I failed at. Um, <laughs> at what, a four-year-old level? And now I'm going to have trouble switching back into science. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try anyway. Let's talk a little bit about plant science. Let's do it. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. My first fact is something um, maybe related to to something we uh, talked about last week. Uh, we talked about how researchers measured um, like the the state of plants in a greenhouse by hanging up little like ultrasonic microphones and then listening to the plants, and then the plants would literally scream when they were drought stressed um, because of like hydraulic pressure stuff inside literally the plants. Literally scream. <laughs> Sure. I mean, yeah, scream as in like emit noises, emit clicking noises in an ultrasonic sound spectrum. Um, and speaking of clicking noises, speaking of clicking noises, now, um, yeah, there's 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 some action going on behind me. I'm just trying not to be too influenced by it. Anyway, the um, so researchers have shown rec very recently, and I think not for the very first time, but um, repeatedly, that if you listen to plants on an ultrasonic spectrum um, with special microphones, you can hear stuff that we as humans can't hear. And it's easy to, to understand that like, if you have these hydraulic movements going on, so you have things under pressure in plants, and sometimes you have air bubbles, sometimes you have like stuff that have higher pressure than others, and then you also have like the very rigid structures of the cell walls or like in a tree, the trunk, like stuff that really has like some physical resistance, that these things together can emit high-pitched sounds. And the new stuff is that we can now understand better and better what these sounds mean. And so I found a story that says that researchers put sound like microphones in the forest and listened for a long time uh, under drought stress and under sort of uh, non-stress conditions. And from that had some conclusions. I mean, this is just like in English, there's this whole, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears, this is 
this is what they're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. If a if a if a tree is not watered in the forest and there is no microphone to hear it, is it actually drought stressed? Is the big question. Um, but they had some microphones. No, the the stories. According to the like PopSci article that I read about it, they had these microphones. But when I looked in the paper, I couldn't find any trace of it. So I don't actually know if they really had the ultrasonic microphones. But the study, even without the ultrasound, is interesting um, because they observed in, in a German forest, they observed um, uh, the, the trees for like, I think, five years. Um, and they had an area that they built a little roof over the ground at a three meter height and uh, sort of diverted all the rain away so they had a very dry spot that was dry for a couple of years um i think with like some intermittent watering in there but overall the soil was much drier than the surrounding um regular soil and they looked at beaches and spruces and their response to responses to that they measured all kinds of things they did something called like um electro uh, electric resistance tomography where they uh, as far as i understood you take like several measurements of like electric uh, resistance across a tree which can measure like your moisture level inside a tree like uh, if it if the wood is very wet then it conducts more electricity than when it's dry um, and by taking several measurements and then sort of rotating it like in a tomograph you can actually then reconstruct sort of the, the inner um uh, the, the inner moisture levels inside the tree trunk without cutting the tree tree down. So it's even when there's no ultrasonic microphones involved, it's a very cool technique. Um, and they did all of that and they they saw the drought-stressed trees and then they rewatered them and then they did these measurements again and they found that, um, and I have to make sure that I don't mix up the beaches and the spruces there, um, the spruces could not refill all of their water reservoirs within one rain season. So they, they after uh, after the, the drought stress was done, they removed the roof, they uh, drenched the soil in water uh, for a whole season, so gave them lots of water to re uh, make up for the lack of water that they were suffering for a long time. And um, they found that they can't make up for for that in within one year. So while they can quickly have like all of the short term reactions go back to normal, so the photosynthetic capacity and stuff like that goes quickly back to uh, a, a normal level, the um, the the water capacity within the tree trunk doesn't go back. Like it still sort of has this like uh, drought hole in its uh, in its in its trunk, where usually there would be water in the trunk. But in this day, they couldn't fill it up again. And the research concludes with the question, like, we don't know how long it takes for these trees to to make up for it. But it, it shows that when you have, like, prolonged drought stress, one good rain season doesn't make up for it in the long run. So that's something that will become more and more pressing and important in the future. So um, it will definitely be a thing that that's, yeah, will, will occupy us again in the future. But it's uh right now it's just interesting to see that, that unlike like a plant in a pot um you can't very quickly like rehydrate it a, a whole tree with within one season okay so Yoram, i think you were just basing um that paper you said the the there was something linked to this original cell paper that came out a couple of weeks ago the very sexy paper about the ai and the ultrasonic I am now reporting something that is a big thing. I mean, it's not really a science paper. It's a news article in science, which is discussing what you get when you cross normal yeast, as in the sort of model organism baker's yeast, which is... Saccharomyces cerevisiae. 
I can never remember how to say that. (laughs) And another fungus thing. um, In this case, it's corn smut. So it's kind of a pathogenic, nasty fungus. Yeah, it makes smuts. It's like this kind of black moldy stuff on corn. I guess it's not ideal. You're not exactly crossing them in this case. What you're doing is you're taking a gene from one, the corn smut, and putting it into the other, the yeast. That makes a lot of sense because yeast is this standard model organism. I think it's like the model of all model organisms if we're really truly honest with ourselves, even more so than Arabidopsis. Um, (laughs) So the gene they took is a gene that is encoding for rhodopsin protein. And these rhodopsin proteins are things that are used in some bacteria as um, to sort of like intercept light. So they put this rhodopsin protein or they put the gene into the yeast so that the protein would be made and it went into the vacuole, and it was then using light, so taking up light and pumping proteins into the vacuole compartment using this um, light. And usually this this would like be something that used up ATP. So they showed that they could basically get the protein in the right spot. I think they used some tagging, so a fluorescent tag to show that. But then they also showed that it was functional in as much as it gave a positive output to the organisms. So um, they could show that under green light, which is the wavelength that the rhodopsin likes the most, this is very different from the kind of photosystems we have in the plants where chlorophyll is green, but it does not like, it's green because it does not like absorbing green light. Green light's a bit useless to plants. Um, In this case, green light is a go. Um, they could show that the yeast with these rhodopsins in them were growing a little bit better than the ones without them when green light was shined onto them. So that suggests that the rhodopsins are also sort of doing this job and thus giving a growth advantage to the yeast. Mm-hmm. So a fungus plus a fungus equals kind of a plant. Obviously, <laughs> it's not nearly a plant. It's not the same sort of system. It's, it's you know, this very simplified system. Um, there is some sort of growth that's happening on with light utilization, but it's, you know, not in that um, realm. And the other thing I have to mention is that this is based on a preprint. So it's something on BioArchive. It means it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. So always take it with a little bit of a grain of salt but it's still kind of a cool thing that we're trying to see what superpowers we can give to organisms that naturally just aren't as cool as plants <laughs> yeah. yeah making making cool yeast um so it's it's accepted by us plant researchers um yeah, yeah from from like a purple rhodopsin um to a blue uh, molecule coumarin 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 I would I would know how to say it in German but it's like yeah I'm I'm coumarin let's call it coumarin um, for this story we have to talk a little bit about uh, fluorescence uh, but only like very briefly fluorescence is something that all plants do based on their chlorophylls and other molecules as well but uh, most prominently chlorophylls that take some light um, energy absorb that and then emit another frequency of light like a longer wavelength of light Um, and that's very important for for photosynthesis research because you can measure all kinds of things um, by shining like a I think it's like a 
No, I, I'm not even trying to say the colors right now because I think it's a blue light, but I'm not 100 sure. But then you measure it like at a like it emits light at a different thing, so it glows in a different color than the blue light that you shine on it. And then with clever filters, you measure that and calculate stuff. Um, so that happens a lot, and there's lots of uh, like biomolecules and uh, synthetic molecules that do fluorescence. It's important, very important in all kinds of science. Like sometimes when you want to know something about the biology, sometimes when you want to tag something, sometimes when you want to mar have a marker somewhere, sometimes even in like non-biological systems, you can measure stuff with fluorescence. Yeah, I mostly think of it as adding a tag onto a protein in the cell so you can like work out where it is or work out who it's interacting with or yeah basically yeah. to just you make something glow it's really that simple and this is uh this is already a very important point like sometimes this fluorescent only happens when two things come together um, and there's also stuff where the fluorescent gets stronger when they come together and this is called aggregation induced emission luminogens so things that em emit light when they are put together um, and these things are also very important for bioimaging so if you want to know if two things interact you put one half of this fluorescent molecule on on one of the two things the other half on the other and if they actually do interact also the two fluorescent things come together and some light can be seen and you can like write a paper about it and after doing like tons and tons of controls um, is this is that specifically something for when um there's like a sort of chemical reaction to make the luminescence or I mean I, I know it commonly we just have sort of half of a fluorescent thing and another half and it's only when the two can hit together and form a whole that they can actually become a full fluorescent thing. Yeah, I think in this uh, aggregation-induced emission luminogen thing, as far as I understood it, is that they um, slightly change the quality of the fluorescent and also the intensity. So um, both parts individually are also fluorescent, but they are more fluorescent uh, if they come together. And in this case, the researchers looked at a med uh, traditionally used medicinal, medicinal plant, Todalia asiatica. Um, I just looked it up and it's just called Todalia. Uh, as its common name um, they also call it here orange climber um, and they for this experiment they crush the roots into a powder and then isolated coumarin compounds and coumarin is this compound that we know also from other plants and it's one of my favorite compounds um, because it gives the, the uh, smell and flavor to uh, sweet grass to woodruff and also to I think uh, tonka beans um, so all of these things have the same like main flavor component in them. But apparently these uh, coumarines exist in several different forms. And then here they found two specific uh, ones, that one called uh, five moss and six moss. And when they put these two, like they extracted these two, put them in an uh, organic solvent. And um, one of them was sort of like blue greenish. The other one was like much dimmer blue, but... Um, when they put them together in the mitochondria in living cells, they could um, uh, image them and found that they they would create a much brighter glow when they were put together. Um, and this is very cool because these are biologically derived components. Many alternatives that you have in a lab for this sort of like imaging techniques, they are uh, synthetically created and often very toxic. So you can't really use them in living cells. You can like take a cut of your cell and fix them in some solvent and then 
apply your your dyes and do your do your um, imaging but you can't really have that in a living thing that does stuff with it and now with this like biologically derived coumarines um, they can now potentially do more experiments with this technique of bringing these two together measuring the fluorescence without killing the thing that they're trying to measure so well, this is like always this, this sort of research. It's early days before it's like an application. There's still some time and development that ha needs to happen. But it looks really promising and really cool to have a biologically derived uh, fluorescent imaging tool now at hand. And probably also smells really nice. If it's a coumarin, I will like try to drink the solution. <laughs> I feel like the flavor, I, I'm trying to think of what the flavor of Woodruff and tonka beans and i think it's that kind of detoly like flavor it's this weird medicinal mm -hmm. aftertaste that reminds me of the dentist whenever i whenever i have like something tonka beanie or woodruffy i'm like mm, there's something a bit yeah yeah also it has to be something that has to be like in in very small amounts especially with tonka you can very easily overdo tonka flavor and then it just tastes like yeah like medicine it, it just tastes not like something that you want to eat for pleasure but when it's a little bit, especially also like sweetgrass is something where I really love the smell. And also like a, there's like a Polish sweetgrass vodka that's really nice oh, yeah. and intense and has like a lot of this like aroma. Um, I really enjoy that as well. I have a really brief one, which is not that plant related, I have to admit, but because we're talking on the topic of food, I'm going to kind of segue from that. So I don't know if we talked about it previously, but about a month ago, there was this big thing that was hitting all of the, the news outlets. And I'm going to link to the Guardian article here, but it was the fact that people have been playing around in the last couple of months with 3D printing, specifically with 3D printing different food products. Did we discuss this already? No, we didn't yet. Okay, so I don't know if you've seen it at all, Yarn, but there was an article that came out um, where basically they 3D printed a cake. Mm. And it's this is maybe a little bit of an oversell because what they were printing was a cheesecake, not a cake. So it means that everything is kind of soft and you don't have to bake it. And also when they were making the cheesecake, they were basically playing around with squirting or extruding different amounts of different substances. So they had... Biscuit paste, peanut butter, strawberry jam, Nutella, banana puree, cherry drizzle, and frosting. And they were putting those in different thicknesses, in different like levels, kind of, you know, which one first, which one at the bottom, how thick of the, each one, and finding out how they could sort of effectively print a, something that looks like a cake, I would say, and structurally has cake-like properties. But I mean, also... It's kind of a pile of biscuit paste, Nutella, and cherry drizzle. So <laughs> I think the I think the research was also kind of funny because like the the finds were things like yeah, it helps if you put the biscuit layer first as opposed to you know try to build everything on top of a like mess of strawberry jam. So these kind of things, but it's just one of these papers that's looking at what we can now do with modern technology. And I just mentioned this because you know it was kind of cool. Um, the article is also interesting because there's a quote from somebody talking about how we can now print chicken, beef, vegetable, and cheese, anything that can be turned into a paste, liquid, or powder, which, hooray, but also gross. Um, <laughs> and also the authors of the paper talk about how they tasted all the failed cakes. And they're like, 
I rather enjoyed it, but it's not a conventional mix. We're not Michelin chefs, um, which is <laughs> maybe an understatement. But this came up in my search. I mean, it came back to my mind. It's it's a paper from a month ago, as I said, because I found something in food hydrocolloids, um, which is a journal I don't really know about, but they were looking at sort of playing around with different macronutrients composition in pea-based inks. So this is like changing the amount of fiber and changing the amount of proteins with the point of making these inks more or less flowable with, again, the point of um, doing this kind of edible printing. So now you can have your 3D printed cheesecake and you can also theoretically, I don't know, print a picture of your friend's face on top of it with some beautiful pea-based dyes. Yeah. Yeah, I like I'm I'm all for like weird new technologies. Um but I with especially with like the highly over engineered food stuff, I feel like as a humanity we have figured food out in some respect. Like like we have other issues with food that we haven't <laughs> figured out, but it's not making cakes in a 3D printer. I think that's not the stuff that, that people struggle with most of the time but anyway i I would say that he who goes to town on the haribo colorado mix should not be making commentaries on people's (laughs) desire for eating over it's over processed for sure and it's definitely extruded from something like i don't have a problem in general with like processed foods that that's not what i want to say but just like the, the 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 length that people have to go to to get the stuff in the shape i mean at least my my weird haribo stuff is just like put in a in a mold of cornstarch and just like dropped in there by a big machine like thousands in this every second and then um i can eat it later but i do think like the 3d print like so a lot of things we eat are actually they are this extrusion technology which i also hadn't thought about before like it's it's not like you're rolling noodles and stretching them by hand e- anymore these days. It's like there's a lot of this like squelch, which is extrusion, going on. And 3D printing is kind of just a version of that. So That's true, yeah. I think you probably eat more extrusion than you're, <laughs> you've been thinking about, Yaram. Yeah. It's just that I don't, I don't really need like my, my pasta to be like a very complicated three-dimensional structure that a printer where like prints every individual pasta shape. Like I like a simple extrusion and then like... Cut off. I mean, they do all kinds, all kinds me, of like very fancy pasta shapes already. Like it's without three printing these really weird pasta shapes. Um, in any case, you should definitely go and check out at least the Guardian article to look at the example of the failed print because it looks really gross. <laughs> I mean, there are worse jobs in the lab than having to eat failed three printed cakes. Although, like, if, if, like, the amounts are completely off, if you have a cake that's just, like, 10% base and 90% jam. <laughs> yeah. And then the surprising find is that that didn't work so well. Um. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have something else that, like, sweet stuff, uh, like cakes, and that's ants. I found a story that looked at how ants and plants evolved together. Um, so apparently there are more than four ants in the world. <laughs> like there's like 40, not even billion, quadrillion, 40 bil- quadrillion ants in the world no, right now. No, I don't know how much a quadrillion is. Yeah, it's just like a four with lots of numbers. I mean, it doesn't really matter if it's like the how many exactly. It just means you find ants pretty much everywhere. In all kinds of habitats, you find ants. You find them in the soil, you find them on trees, you find them in foliage, you find them... Like in in dry areas, you find them in 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 rainforests. You find 
ants everywhere and it's it's surprising um how like um how they they could conquer all of these different habitats uh and uh, what i didn't know is that when flowering plants emerged during evolution 140 million years ago that's also the time when ants emerged and uh according to the study that was just uh published they um evolved together the, so how it works according to this the, the the model that they proposed is that that plants essentially when uh, are just big straws the, i mean this is not what they say this is how i imagine plants they suck out water from the ground and then they evaporate that through their leaves so they take water that's underground and put it overground and this makes Sorry, just- this changes the climate this cha- this makes like much wetter areas um and this this ch- uh, drastically changed the composition of of habitats Sorry, your your other fact about the drought and the plants was also began with plants are just big straws. I, yeah. like, I forgot to say that before, but that's pretty much my, my, my line today. Like my, my story today is plants are big straws. Um, Do you just and- like type this into Google Scholar and like see what pops <laughs> up? Like- no, I mean, I've, I've had one other actual scientist um, talk about this analogy before that, uh, that I knew that was talking about how like... I mean, the plants are literally sucking on these like long tubular structures, um, like the xylem or phloem, xylem, I think. Xylem. Xylem. Um, and these are pretty much like long tubes, and they suck by it by evaporating water in the in the leaves, and this cr- creates like hydraulic pressure that then drives the water from the ground into the into the plant. Um, and they're sucking it up. And uh, for example, during winter, when the soil freezes, they still like suck on. If they would keep their leaves, for example, they would continue like having this pressure. But the the frozen water can't move in it in the trees, and then that would actually collapse the straws and would be a problem. Um, but this goes too far now. But the idea is like plants in in the story about ants, 140 million years ago. Um, with like this this explosion of uh, flowering plants, suddenly they the flowering plants changed the habitats that they were living in and changed also the the humidity, and this uh, had an influence on the ants. Uh, some ants um, went like uh, left the the soil and went then up into the trees into the canopy, and they very closely evolved together with the plants to the point that plants developed these like uh, fleshy seeds that are a treat for the for the ants. So the ants would actually come and eat like the the fleshy bits of the seeds and distribute the seeds somewhere else so that would be the benefit to the plant and according to these phylogenetic studies they could also show how when plant species would leave like certain areas the ants would follow along so when a, like a, a plant pioneered like a flowering plant went into a new habitat um, they would also find new ant species establishing themselves in the same spot there um so that shows that there's like a very close relationship between ants and flowering plants for like 140 million years. And yeah, that's I, I never thought about ants like this, that they are such close like friends to, to the plants. And I think we also talked like, I, I don't know if you were part of like in, in the plant book club recently that read, um, I think in, in that episode you went, uh, um, uh, you didn't take part, but they were also talking a lot about ants and the importance of ants for like soil biosystem uh, ecosystems and so on. So ants, actually cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to preface this by saying I'm in a very contrarian mood today. <laughs> That's fine. But, 
Firstly, my first point is, it's not like the plants can follow the ants. Like, obviously the plants went first and then the ants went. Yeah. Like, what are the ants going to do? Like, they have to follow. they They can stay with the plants that they're already living with, like... Yeah, maybe it's true. Like maybe, maybe if you okay. look at a different species, I don't know, some beetles or something, you also like find them coming along with the uh, with the in, flowering In almost plants. all cases, right? And also, yeah, okay, maybe maybe this is a close relationship, and I'm just being very cynical. And then my second point is that the ants didn't make it underwater, but that might be <laughs> really unfair <laughs> unfair expectation to have on the ants. <laughs> just going underwater ants. Um, the scientists discover swimming ants. Uh, Jesus. March two thousand and six, but it's only the headline. I don't know. Like that's actually in North Queensland, so of course in Australia ants Australia, are swimming. Ants can swim. <laughs> there you go. You had it here first. I mean, swimming is not the same as like underwater, but um, yeah. Also, swimming ants is probably just some scientists threw them into the water and were like, "Look, we've discovered a new thing: swimming ants." <laughs> Speaking of discovering new things, I have a diversity today. Yay. Diversity in the place. Science. Yeah, so a, a few weeks ago now, I think I mentioned that I went to a quite cool talk at the Natural History Museum where um, Sandy Knapp, who is a botanist who works at the NHM, was giving this discussion on her recent book and her book is called In the Name of Plants and it's kind of going through different plant species or I think genesis which were specifically named after people and one of the discussions around this topic was the fact that there doesn't seem to be a lot of information about plants that are named after non-white men basically all of the plants that are famously known have these names like I don't know named after Alfred Wallace or some famous king or some guy who like explored and discovered quote unquote um, and originally there was sort of this project where a lot of female scientists were then looking into this and they were discovering that it was more common for these plants at least from what they could find easily it was more common for these plants to be named after historical mythical women than actual real women so there was things like Eo, um, Daphne, Medusa came up really often, but there's not much that comes up if you look for actual, you know, historical women um, as opposed to fictional historical women, I guess. So they actually responded to this by starting a project where they were trying to do these kind of Wikipedia edits to make sure that where there are genesis that are named after women, they actually are easy enough to find. So you can go onto Wiki and then find at least a little bit of information. Um, So enriching Wikipedia so that it doesn't just contain what we always see everywhere of like this, this male history. Um, they did say that they found that there was a little bit of a shift from naming genre from just mythical women in about the 1850s. So before that, yeah, pretty much just mythical women. But at least um, there was a little bit of a shift. Um, and there's at least an emerging trend where it has got a little bit more common to have women... <laughs> being named in botany and then also a little bit more diversity as well mm-hmm. somehow 
Um, but based on this, I wanted to mention a, a scientist who has a genus named after her. Her name is Sojatmi Dransfield, and she is a scientist who originally comes from Indonesia. She completed her studies there. She was first kind of a staff member at the herbarium in Bogor in Indonesia, but then came to the University of Reading in um, the UK to do her PhD, went back to Indonesia for a bit, was working on bamboos, which has been kind of the focus of her life, um, and then again moved to the UK in the late 70s. And yeah, throughout her, her life, she really has had this focus on bamboos and trying to delimit all these different types of bamboo that exist throughout the tropics, so focusing on Malaysia, Thailand, and Madagascar. Um, and I think this is pretty important because bamboo is basically a big grass. So it can be one of those things that, you know, it's it's not as easy maybe as a flowering plant where you can be like, oh, yeah, that one's got a pink flower. That one's got a red flower. Cool. They're two different species. I think with grassy things, it can get a little bit trickier um, and not so much trickier. But I think just there's a little bit less public interest often and these these species tend to get ignored. So. I'm not exactly sure how many species she has exactly identified and described. I saw one thing that said 42 different species, but something else said up to 60 species of bamboo. So this is really looking at like the trunks and the leaves and the shoots and sort of doing very systematic analysis. Um, again, there was a thing that said it was also using software to sort of like really get this well done to be able to work out the differences in these plant species. Um, she's also made different traveling trips like to the Philippines um, to look at um, the different specimens to collect things. Again, it's it's quite underrepresented and to understand the roles. In the talk, um, Sandra Knapp also mentioned that understanding these different bamboos also had sort of broader ecological importance because, for example, in Madagascar, there's associations between like certain species of bamboos and certain lemurs. So there's sort of this mm -hmm. link between the, the primary producer, the bamboo and, and the lemurs. So understanding, you know, if there are different species and the lemurs are favoring different species also has that kind of broader um, value. Obviously, we're happy to understand plants for plants' sake, but if there's any of you listening out there who are like, <laughs> I really want it to have a cute little fluffy lemur attached, there is that, this this gives everything. Um, and yeah, so as I mentioned, there is now an entire genus named after um, her. It's called Sojatmia. It's an entire genus, but it's a monotypic genus, which means there's actually only one species in the genus, which is Sajatmia ridleyi, and it is, of course, a bamboo species. It comes from um, Thailand and Malaya, and yeah, it's basically named after her, um, with the second part of the name, the ridleyi, linked to Henry Nicholas Ridley, who was an English botanist um, who sort of also lived in Singapore and I think was studying these species as well. One other final thing to mention is that Sajatmi is also married to another botanist, John Drainsfield, and they're the only botanical couple, at least according to Twitter. So again, grain of salt here, but they're the only botanical couple to have a genre named after them together. So there's like Dransfield something as well, um, which is, <laughs> I don't know, couple goals. <laughs> yeah, this is always cute until the breakup and then suddenly you can't change this genus name wow. um, <laughs> yeah me the, the old romantic here um, 
but overall it's really cool although i'm still like i think it's now a couple of weeks ago that you you brought this this thing like we should stop naming things after people um yes. I still it still resonates with me like the, the whole idea of, that's like, true um but yeah but still very cool um and very interesting like i always see when i see like from time to time you find like papers that say like new species discovered and you look into it and they say like yeah we actually have found a new grass and we thought it was like one kind of grass but actually the population is two different species of grass but we could never tell and you see the pictures and you're like yeah i understand how you could never tell like grasses are just like incredibly similar to one another Yeah, so part of my undergrad was um, for conservation biology. We had to do a course where we were up north from where I live. So it's kind of in a semi-deserty region. And we were trying to identify spinifex species. So again, like basically a ball of grass. And, (laughs) you know, you you have these small collections you take in the field. And it's basically a blade of grass. It's a blade of angry, tightly wrapped, sticky grass. And then you go back into the herbarium and you look at all of these like descriptions and it's like, yes, in the springtime, it has a beautiful flower and it becomes lush and green, but you've just got like one angry stick of grass, which is what this thing is most of its life until the rains come. So I get it. (laughs) I get why nobody's been looking deeply (laughs) into the bamboos, Um, but it's good that somebody did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this might be a bias fact. Can you play the bias theme song? Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias. That was so quick. Bye. 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 I don't know if this is technically a bias, but I think it's a cool thing. It's And it's not really related to plants, and I'm sorry about that, but I think it's really interesting, so I, I really want to talk about it. Um, Yoram, if you publish your paper on plant science and you want to get it featured in news or you yourself are writing kind of like a sexy, clickbaity blog article about it, what's the best way to get attention? Um, oh, there's like many things. Uh one thing is to have a small mistake in your in your thing that you create <laughs> and then yep. that will play the algorithms that like yeah there, there has been maybe you've seen this uh, there's this guy i don't know his name but he's very famous on the social media for doing um weird inventions like useless inventions um like having a toilet paper roll on your head to to wipe your nose and like other like cra- uh, like Useless stuff, but funny. And in one video, he said, like, very often he makes, like, these small mistakes. For example, he he says how he calculated something, and he just says the wrong numbers in the calculation. He says, like, 12 by 3, so 50. Um, and then his comments are full of people <laughs> correcting him, and that boosts his videos, that, that boosts his content, and so more people see his stuff. Um, so, yeah, that would be one thing. Maybe a little bit unethical in a science field. Like, you don't really want to, like, for, to, to promote your, your scientific study promoted by having mistakes in there um this is this is kind of not quite that but something a little bit similar and also a little bit harder when it comes to plants specifically but in english there's this kind of like phrase from journalists which is if it bleeds it leads which is basically the idea that if something is tragic news you put that on the front cover because that's what sells the papers um and there's this article that came out i guess last month and i only found out about it recently but it came out last month in nature human behavior and it's looking at how to basically get clickbait so the the, the new i mean news the the new site upworthy you know upworthy mm-hmm. 
they themselves have been doing internal experiments they've been conducting their own things where they basically release the same stories but they're releasing them with different titles to see which titles are more clickbaity which titles will attract more attention and then get the the stories to be more viral and they basically released that data set very recently um and it's got 105,000 different variations of news stories, which generated nearly 6 million clicks from more than 370 million impressions. And basically, they just found that the more negative words you use, the more people will click, which is kind of a known thing. But also, I just... Yeah. It's really nice to see that there's... I think mean, this is just cool. It's, it's a site that is getting clicks and they're also experimenting just upsetting because like i know i want to be better than that but i absolutely know also that it works for me like i don't i don't click on the story where it says like happy end for everybody involved um turns out it's everything's cool i'm just like okay yeah i'm i'm not reading that but if somebody says like new study finds everything is horrible then i'm like click (laughs) (laughs) i need to know why quick yeah yeah Anyway, I think it's I think it's very cool, and I would challenge you all to find a way to sell your plant research. I mean, mine is system biology in a greening chloroplast in a greening plastic. I'm not sure how I can really how I could make my PhD story sound I mean, in, in, doom and gloom. In in some respect, we see that now with like I mean, we both of us we read for for this podcast lots of like um, summaries and press releases and stuff, and pretty much everything what i read ends in yeah and because of the climate crisis everything's <laughs> bad and that's that's why it's important to know this what we found out and i think it was literally also for every story that i found today um maybe not for the kumarin one um because that was very technical but definitely for like the, the tree research and also for the the ant evolution they were like yeah but by the way bad stuff and um yeah, I think yeah, that w- people are trying that already. Maybe not directly in the headlines, but it's definitely always a spin that you find it to be like, hey, please care about what we do because things are getting bad. I wonder at what point it starts going back the other way because you just get completely numb to everything being the same kind of awful. So if it's all climate change, climate change, climate change, and at one point you're like, oh, it's not climate change? Like, hooray, it's like deforestation. <laughs> it's really... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to call climate change like a, a trending topic, um, but uh, current, like, currently very urgent topic. But I think we've had stuff before, like we had acid rain in the 80s and uh, other stuff. Desertification, yeah. Um, so... I think there will will have been in the in the communication about these this kind of research other things that were shoehorned in there to to make it uh, topically relevant right now. Anyway, on that note, Yoram, did you have a cat fact to bring us home on? Yes. Cat fact. You won't believe these horrible news, Tegan. Um, my my <laughs> last fact will shock you. Um, shock and disappoint. <laughs> I mean, there's one. There's another trend that people try um, to make research more interesting, and that ha- is having like funny or interesting titles. And this one is called "Marvelous Moths," um, and the the rest of the title is pollen deposition rate of bramble is greater at night than day um and what they 
looked at is is moths because marvelous moths um, moths are really important um, for pollination um, they do that at night when we are sleeping or podcasting um, and uh, they did in this in this research they looked at bramble and uh, like had camera traps set up and um, were measuring like pollination um, efficiencies and stuff like that and I figured out that that was um, during the night although the nighttime was shorter than the daytime more more pollen was deposited uh, at night than during the day and they linked that back to moths and they could find that moths are actually more uh, efficient pollinators than bees during the daytime even though bees have more time during the day they get less done and this just means um, moths are actually like also very important, and I think they also in the press release ended on yeah. By the way, climate crisis, moths that bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I just took away from this is like from from moth to boss because moths. <laughs> I'm just about to put like a, a little like note to listeners in here that. I mean, I'm very distracted today, but it's not helping that, like, your notes... I, I Usually I try not to read Yoram's note while he's explaining them to me because it has from moss to boss as one <laughs> dot point. There's, like, five dot points, and one is from moss to boss, and then the last dot point is be nice to moss, which is also... <laughs> Like yeah. I know it's my problem. <laughs> also, a bit your problem, Yoram. Yeah, but I I didn't know like uh, there's so many programs looking at saving the bees and saving like the 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 pollinators that we most of the time observe during the yeah. day, and we sometimes say yeah it's butterflies as well and it's flies and it's like sometimes even rodents. It's all kinds of critters that we see during the day. But we tend to overlook also the very important role of moss at night. Although I wondered, and I didn't actually look this up, but I wondered, I thought many plants close their flowers at night. So how pollination when flower close? I mean, but some specifically open them at night. Like yeah. there's these kind of... Um, yeah, I don't know what bramble beautiful. does. I mean, they, they only looked at bramble in this study. Uh, I just called <laughs> bramble flowers at night. And... Um, Sounds like a prompt for some like weird image creation, artificial intelligence. <laughs> and with that, I think it's time for us to say goodbye for another week. Um, until next time, we discuss things ramblingly, bramblingly, <laughs> ramblingly with you all. Ramble, you can ramble. find us on www.plantsandpipettes.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Plants and Pipettes. You can find Yoram on Twitter at Plants Pipette, or if you really want to, you can tweet him on Mastodon at um, uh, Plants and Pipettes at podcast.social. And as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Wait, my play button is in. I have to change okay. the windows. It doesn't, really, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, Yara. It doesn't matter. <laughs>